I have never felt uh, pressure at the local news level from any manager to espouse a particular political or social viewpoint. I, I love when people complain about the media. I, I said to this to someone the other day, I'm like, that's, that's like complaining about the restaurants for bad service. Which one? Because you go to one restaurant, you have great service. You go to another restaurant, you have terrible service. But also you're the one picking the restaurant. My name is Linda Laurel, and I'm asking you to have the courage to listen with an open mind to all of our voices, because our voices matter. I want to take a moment to thank BMW of West Houston for sponsoring this episode of our Voices Matter podcast. BMW, of course, is known as the ultimate driving machine because of its precision and power. As someone who has driven a BMW for many years now, I can attest to that firsthand. But I think what's even more important, especially about this particular BMW dealership, is that it understands the power and the impact of giving back to its community. BMW of West Houston is known for its support of countless local charities, and that is important to us here at Our Voices Matter podcast. So if you choose to do business with BMW of West Houston, not only will you be getting the stellar first-class service that the dealership is known for, but you can also rest assured that you are doing business with a dealership that truly cares about and gives back to its community. Hey, everybody. It's Linda Laurel. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Our Voices Matter podcast. Got a real treat for you today, and I cannot wait for you to hear this conversation. I'm sitting down with Brendan Keefe, a friend and former colleague who happens to be one of the most decorated investigative journalists in the country. And for Brendan, it's really not about the awards. It is about the work itself. It is about his ability to uncover truths, to hold powerful people accountable when sometimes they don't want to be, and literally make a difference in all of our lives. I mean, his stories have actually done that. We go and take a deep dive in this conversation into the industry that both of us have dedicated our lives to, the industry of journalism. Now, just to give you a little bit of background on his awards, I have to do this because because I just have to, okay? So he describes himself as a one-man band multimedia journalist because he is, in fact, just that. Um, He works as his own photographer, video editor, researcher, producer. Um, He also is teaching younger journalists who are coming up as part of the Tegna organization for whom he works at his television station in Atlanta. He works in Atlanta, but he works with journalists all over the country, helping them to understand the profession that they are in. So in terms of awards, let me just tell you, okay, Peabody, DuPont Columbia, six National Edward R. Murrow Awards, a National Emmy, Scripps Howard Award, the Hillman Prize, and more than 100 regional Emmys. And he's still going strong. He's got so much more in him and so many more stories that he wants to share and uncover. And we're going to talk about all of that. But you're also going to see Brendan, the human being, the man, the husband, the father, and the world that he wants to create and leave for his children as they are coming up. So again, I'm so excited about this conversation, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Here now, my conversation with Brendan Keefe. Brendan, I can't believe we are finally getting to do this. It has been way too long, my friend. Welcome to Our Voices Matter podcast. Thanks. It's so good to be here, Linda. We go way back. Yeah, we do. Going back to all those days of covering stories. And one of the things I remember most, I think, was your coverage of Katrina, here in Houston, you were out in the field. I was on the anchor desk. Uh, one of one of many fun stories. Huh, fun, right? Yeah, uh, one of many stories that we too got many hurricanes to count. Unfortunately, too many too many hurricanes to count. Um, too many momentous uh, occasions to count. But you, my dear, have gone on to incredible heights 
in this industry that we know and love, this industry of journalism. So I, I want to start by asking you, because I've never asked you this question, what drew you to journalism in the first place? Why do you do what you do? <laughs> oh, yeah. so, so I'm the youngest of nine children. And uh, my mom was pregnant for a decade. She had eight children in 10 years. Oh, my God. 1953 <laughs> to 1964. And then four years later, I was the mistake who came along um, at, as number nine. Because no family with eight children says, you know what we need around here? We need a ninth mouth to feed. One more. <laughs> so, uh, so. <laughs> um, <laughs> As a result, being the youngest of nine kids, before the remote control on the television, I was the remote control. So little Brendan would sit next to the TV, and we also had one of those rotary antennas. So for the young people watching, before the internet, before cable, you had an antenna on the roof. And if you lived where I grew up in Connecticut, between Boston and New York, you could get Boston stations, New York stations, Connecticut stations, depending on which way the antenna was facing. So we had a little rotary controller and I would have to tune in the different stations, tune in uh, on the television as people wanted to watch something else. And for broadcast, we had access to eight or 10 stations, uh, which in the 19, early 1970s was unheard of. Most people had three or four if they were lucky. Um, and so I saw my family members. This sounds so simple, but it's amazing, you know, when how, what an impact your childhood has on the rest of your life. And I saw all of these faces glued to this box that I was sitting next to. They weren't paying attention to me. And I realized in a very simple sort of, you know, uh, toddler way, if I want their attention and I want them to listen to me, I need to be in that box. Uh, so I always thought of that. And I was always fascinated with technology and all those things. So in high school, uh, my friend, David Kalatosti, who was uh, just another kid at my high school, uh, said, hey, guess what? Uh, the high school just got its own cable television station. This was in 1982. Um, and they said, we don't, the librarians don't know what to do with it. We have our own cable channel. Now, this was back when the cable boxes were like a little like one row typewriter keys, you know, tick, 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 and a little controller to decide you know, the three tiers that the button would control. The reason I say that is because our high school TV station was wedged between uh, MTV, WNBC in New York, and, uh, and then one button over from HBO. So if you were flicking around the channels, I mean, that was a pretty good channel position. Um, and as a result, I was better known as a ninth grader than I have been at any time in my 30-year professional TV career. People would ask my mother for her autograph when she was at the checkout at the grocery <laughs> store. It was uh, the harbinger of things to come, a precursor oh, of things to come. And it wasn't that we were doing great work. We were awful because we had no instruction and we were learning sort of uh, by trial and error as if we had invented television because we had no formal education. So we learned the hard way. Uh, and the reason people watched us in high school was because we made so many mistakes. It was high comedy, which was not the intent. Um, and, you know, it was a small public high school. And we, we, we actually would record our anchor segments um, at different times because we'd have study hall at different times. Yeah. And we could only afford the one shirt and one tie. So all of the male talent shared the same shirt and tie, which we kept in a file cabinet. And so when you, we would throw to each other, he'd say, oh, David, with more on that, here's David, David. And then David would be wearing exactly the same shirt. He <laughs> would be wearing the same shirt and tie. Exactly the same. Uh, that so, shirt and tie probably uh, had, a, had a little odor of its own, I would think, too. <laughs> yeah, no, it got bad. It was never washed in four years. I mean, it was only worn for 20-minute periods at a time, but by multiple people. Definitely not COVID compliant, but this was the early 80s. But I was hooked. I just love television, uh, television in general. But then I became, I sort of became a television person first and a journalist second. Um, and when, when I hear when I hear this story, it, it it's so perfect because now I see how you know trial and error. Let's just figure out how to make it work. And you're wearing all of the different hats and doing all of the different things. And you're doing exactly that right now, except now you know what you're doing. But you're still wearing all of the hats. You've become 
your own sort of, you're an MMJ, multimedia journalist. You do it all. You shoot, you write, you edit, you report. You, you know, you're the, back in the day when I was in journalism school and got my master's, we did what was called one man band, right? You Mm -hmm. went out, you had this big ass camera on your shoulder, (laughs) right? You'd set up the, the tripod you'd set up all the shots and you'd do everything. And then you'd go back to the station and you'd write and you edit, and then you'd get on the air and do the story. And then it moved to what it, what, what it has been over the last many years. And now we're back to one man bands, but they're called MMJs. So you have seen the full circle. So here's, here's my question. What is it about being an MMJ right now you go out, you report your own stories, and you've won tons of awards, and we'll get to that in a minute. But what is it about doing it yourself from start to finish on an investigative level that gets your juices flowing, and why is that important to you as a journalist? Um, you know, it probably goes back to birth order again. I had eight people telling me what to do. And, um, (laughs) and that's not counting mom and dad. And so the, the idea of being able to self-direct, um, I think it comes down to a single word. You've never heard me answer a question with a single word, but the single word is freedom. I have the freedom to self-direct. So if I can, I can follow my gut as an investigative reporter. Some of my biggest stories came from just observing something while on a totally different assignment and saying, you know what, that just doesn't seem right. Or even watching a newscast and at the end of a story, just being left with the question, why? I get to go chase that answer down and I don't have to clear it with anyone. Now, I don't even have to clear it with, now I've worked with some of the best photographers. You and I have so many great friends to this day uh, from our days at KPRC. Um, Many of them now retired, but they're still really good friends. Uh, You know, the Charlie Duckworths and the Steve Longs and um, uh, you know, so many great photographers we worked with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Wally Crow, Sherry Presley, um, so many great, great photographers. And But the thing is, you don't get to choose the great photographer. Sometimes you're there with someone who's just punching a clock. Exactly. And I can't tell you how many times I got in a news car and someone said, well, what's the stupid story we're on today? Well, what are they making us do now? Are we going to get lunch? I mean, <laughs> exactly. That stand up is stupid. I wouldn't do that. (laughs) What time are we going to get home tonight? Right. Right. And so, and I understand that it's some people, to some people, this is a job and to some people it's a calling. And it's really tough if you're one of the people for whom it's a calling when you're sitting next to someone where it's just a job. Uh, I learned from those great photographers. I started as a full-time photographer at carrying the big ass camera, as you mentioned, the big three quarter inch deck uh, and the Cine 60 belt and the low, low mini pro lights and um, but now I'm carrying something like this, you know, which is a, like a GoPro style camera, which is always mounted on my dashboard. Or maybe it's the DSLR, which I always have handy. But most of my interviews are shot on, on a camera this size now. Um, so it's been a game changer that the technology has allowed it. But the biggest thing is it, it buys me two things, freedom, as I mentioned, but also there, I'm not going to name any names, but you and I have worked with people before where the bosses would never would never lower themselves to ask them to do a menial task because they worked at a high level. Mm-hmm. My, my goal is sort of to be the last person they want to lay off and also to be the person they would never ask to do a menial task because they're doing important work. Mm-hmm. By working alone and also by doing all of these jobs, um, it kind of makes me um, fireproof. As in, like layoff proof. Yeah, yeah, I got I you. I, I, I got you. And as a fifty-three-year-old, that that becomes more and more important because they can hire four people for what they're paying me. Okay, so let's let's dig a little deeper now into some specific stories because so for those of you who are listening, um, Brendan is sitting in his office, and behind him is a whole slew of awards, including. Emmys and DuPonts and Edward R. Murrow and Peabody. And I mean, you're, if not the most decorated, one of the most decorated journalists in the country on the local and national level. So kudos to you, my friend. I know you don't do it for the awards. You do it because you have a love 
of, of finding the truth. Okay. Um, but I want to ask you of all of the stories that you've done, many of which have resulted in laws being changed, um, lives being changed, um, truth being uncovered in ways that it had not been uncovered before. Is there a particular story that for Brendan Keith is a, a story of, um, I don't want to say glory, but a story that makes you feel like you have done something so important that it makes you feel proud when you lay your head on the pillow at night. What is that story? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm sure in your career, people have asked you who's the most interesting person you interview, and they would expect you to say George H.W. Bush, or they'd expect you to say Barbara Bush, or they'd expect you to say some famous politician. Um, I would like to ask you, I'm not going to interview you because then that's turning the tables, but I'm sure it's somebody they've never heard of. Some, you know, the, the, I interviewed a guy in, um, in Houston named Henry Gamble. Um, even though I interviewed him 25, 20 years ago plus, um, his name sticks with me because he was Dr. Henry Gamble. He was a gifted orthopedic surgeon. Um, and he was a hand surgeon, actually. And he lost his eyesight to glaucoma rapidly to where he could no longer practice as a surgeon. But then at, he, at age 50, suddenly uh, couldn't do any job because he was completely blind within a year. And so there, the reason I bring up Henry Gamble is because so many people come to these T intersections in life. Those are the heroic stories to me. It's not someone, you know, who's given a million dollars and then creates a billion dollar company. <laughs> it's the people who, you know, what do they say? Life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. Uh, I forget who, who said that, but I can Google it in a minute and figure that out. But there's these T intersections that people come to where you can't go straight anymore. COVID has done that to all of us where we've had to go either left or right because you can't go down the same path anymore. And it's resulted in people changing their trajectory. But imagine being a gifted orthopedic surgeon and suddenly you can't practice surgery anymore. You can't even get a job. So what does Dr. Henry Gamble do? He enrolls at the University of Houston in the art department. He tried painting first, but even his very understanding professors were saying, you're, you're blind, you can't paint. But then they turned him to sculpture. And he started sculpting uh, figurines, uh, human figures, and created these incredible figures just to pass the day. Uh, but they were so amazing because he had the uh, knowledge of human anatomy and he had the gifted hands of a surgeon. And I loved, as a storyteller, I loved the, the sort of uh, poignant irony that he was creating art that he, only he could not see. So isn't that interesting? He's creating art solely for the consumption of, of others, but it was something to use the skills he still had left. And then he started selling them for thousands of dollars, um, which was sort of just a footnote because the real reward to him was the work. That's the way I feel about what I do. Look, all of this hardware is great as a Zoom background, <laughs> um, but it doesn't really amount to anything. I've always thought the Emmy was the perfect uh, TV award. Because the Emmy is, um, speaking to a fellow recipient, it's really gorgeous, isn't it? I mean, the black and the gold. But this is like microns thin uh, gold plating. And underneath it is pot metal. It's junk pot metal, right? They always break right here. And if you leave them anywhere near the sun, this turns like into a silver with cracked hints of a whisper of gold on it. It does, isn't that a perfect analogy for television? It looks amazing, but when you actually sit down on the set, it's chipped and there's pieces missing and it's not real brick and it's not real glass. And um, so, but here's, to me, what the awards do is that a, a Peabody buys you a year of freedom. You win a Peabody and the CEO of your company is sitting at uh, Cipriani Wall Street with all of these celebrities. And the reason that your CEO is sitting there and your boss's that, that's your boss's 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 boss. The reason your bosses are sitting there with the CEO is because of the work you did. That buys you a year of getting to do more work like that. That's the real 
and, uh, and it buys you more freedom to do the kinds of stories that you were saying, you know, being able to follow your, your instinct as a, as a journalist and, you know, someone who has, has all this experience. And, and every one of these little, you know, trinkets mm-hmm. represents a changed law or it represents a, um, the Peabody was for fixing 911 nationwide. Uh, one woman drowned on the phone with 911 and they couldn't find her. And I was trying to figure out why couldn't they find her? And it turned out the answer was a broken national 911 system. But we kept digging until we got to the, and I say we, the me, myself, and I team, but um, we just kept digging until we got to the answer. And, and those are the real stories that stick with me are, you know, the handicapped button, uh, the, you know, the uh, button for people who are in a wheelchair to get into City Hall in, in Houston. It was such a small story from 25 years ago. But when I drive down past City Hall in Houston, I say, I put that button there. That's that because I've made the world a better place. Mm. Investigative reporters are cynical people. You know, you, you, you have to see the cloud in the middle of every silver lining <laughs> um, to try to sort of hunt down what's wrong. Systemic and institutional failures we can fix, but the bottom line is the end goal is to get them fixed. So it's not to get people to, you know, it's not about um, what I like to call the seven things in your sock drawer that can kill you kind of investigations, you know. Right. right. Um, so, so you, you talk about... You just mentioned the 911 system and how your reporting helped really to change the system nationwide. Um, I believe you just won a national Emmy for outstanding, outstanding investigative, regional investigative reporting and news and documentary. And that was for your report on the Parkland shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, correct? That's right. That's right. And that was all about the report itself delved into 911 and what happened when the students who were under attack literally as lives were being snuffed out right in front of them were calling the 911 system so i want you to first of all share with our audience a little bit about how you uncovered that piece of the story what happened since and then i want to try and bring it full circle to Sadly, the most recent school shooting, which happened just a couple of days ago, is re-recording this um, and, and talk about that within the, within the context. So tell us about your reporting on Parkland. Yeah, what's interesting about Parkland is that it had been, it was um, well-trodden ground for journalists by the time I looked into it. Uh, the Sun Sentinel uh, newspaper had already won a Pulitzer for its coverage of what went wrong at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas in terms of the response. You know, the the shooter was able to get away. They were looking at video cameras that were, um, they thought they were watching a live feed, but they were watching a delayed feed. There were so many things. It was a perfect storm of what went wrong. But what's interesting is uh, I was doing a follow-up to our original 911 investigation, which we called uh, 911 Lost on the Line, because there were one of the problems we uncovered was the routing of 911 calls. When you, if I call 911 from this phone right now, um, it is actually going to hit a tower in the next county because I am 200 yards from the next county. And every carrier's uh, cell phone receiver um, is on that tower that's going to be picked up by this phone. So when I call 911 here, I reach for Scythe County, Georgia, instead of Fulton County, Georgia. They're going to transfer me to Fulton. Fulton's going to say, no, you're in Alpharetta because that's my mailing address. And then Alpharetta is going to transfer me to Johns Creek because that's where I actually live. So three or four transfers before I'm talking to a 911 operator who can send help. It's not only a theory, it's happened in practice. We had a babysitter who had that happen to her when she saw a child injured out in the street. Um, That's what happened at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas was that uh, the because the 911 calls are routed by the tower location, not by the phone or the caller's location, misroutes happen so frequently, there's literally a hot button to transfer to all the surrounding jurisdictions in every 911 center in America. And Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, um, every single cell phone call, every single cell phone call, actually every single call, because there wasn't a single landline call, even though they have an office phone, they didn't, nobody picked up the landline. Everyone, teachers, administrators, students, 
used a cell phone. So every single call from inside, inside Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School went to a police department 911 center in the next city in uh, Coral Springs that could not dispatch police. They could only dispatch medical because they had a contract with Parkland. You know, the what police. When, when people, and I urge people to go to Brendan's website, uh, brendankeefe.com, and he's got all of his work listed there, and, and, and you, can, you, know, you can watch it. And when I watched that report, and you could hear the, you know, the, the 911 operator in, in one county talking to the 911 operator in the other county, and they're just not, I mean, there's, there's not, it's not computing. They're talking over they, the name of the high school, the, yep. you know, where are you? I mean, th- the chaos was unbelievable. And then when you think of that within the context of, of these students and teachers who were under fire, and, and, and fighting, you know, to get some help there that the system was not serving them. It was, it's unbelievable. It really you know, is. Linda, thank you. We're, we're, we're um, I think one of the great benefits of what we do and what you continue to do with your podcast is we learn every day. And, and if you're a journalist and you don't take every assignment as an opportunity to learn about a complex system mm-hmm. of either a government or the way, the way things work, you're wasting your time uh, because in this particular case, I was able to use my experience with 911 to know to request calls from Coral Springs. I actually got the calls from that story the day I was editing. The story was supposed to run the next day. I was editing. It takes me two days to edit a major investigative piece, two full days. I was just sitting down to edit when the FedEx arrived with the disks. Uh, Broward County had just sent me download links to all the 911 calls because all the media had already requested them because Broward County Sheriff 911 was the jurisdiction for Parkland. Why would you call up a neighboring jurisdiction and ask for 911 calls for a school shooting? So I was the only one who requested 911 calls from Coral Springs. Because you knew to make the request. They had 118 or something like, it was over 100 calls. They sent me the recordings and those were the recordings where you heard the... uh, the school children under fire. Um, and you literally hear the gunfire and the line go dead. Um, and, but it was more importantly, you could hear that confusion to where they were transferring to each other. They didn't even realize they were talking to another dispatcher from another jurisdiction. They were mistaking um, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas as the corner of Stonen and Douglas, as if it was an intersection. They're, they weren't able to triangulate the location using the location accuracy systems. So here's the end result. Yeah, I was just um, going to say, what, what happened as a result of this report? I'm interviewing myself. I apologize. <laughs> okay. I'm sitting down with one of the most skilled interviewers of all time, and I'm sitting here asking myself the next question. Um, but yeah, what the bottom line is that, and it's taken an extraordinarily long time, uh, in the seven years since we first did our 911 series, uh, finally, the system is uh, being fixed. Uh, a major carrier, one of the big three carriers right now, um, is provisioning uh, routing of 911 calls uh, from the, by the caller's location, by the, where you're calling from. So if I call 911 and I'm on that particular carrier of one out of three, it is going to go to the correct 911 center without a transfer based on my location. And that is technology that was invented as a direct result of our investigative reporting. Um, there's a company that has seven patents because they saw our story and they said, we can fix that. And they have seven patents on the technology and one of the companies has already bought it and the others are going to follow suit because of competition. The FCC stepped in and strongly recommended, but really what it comes down to is this is going to be a market-driven solution. And um, now we're already seeing incredible improvements. They've already improved location accuracy, but now they're going to fix the routing problem too. And it's already underway right now. And that's very gratifying. Um, And, you know, the awards people never, I mean, it's great. We won some awards for that story, but the awards are annualized. And so getting results seven years after you started a story, and we've been investigating 911, I'm still investigating 911 um, at Atlanta's airport. Um, you know, the, there's nobody, nobody's handing out awards for staying on a story for seven years. 
And maybe they ought to, not for me, but to encourage journalists to never give up until you get things fixed. So I'm so glad you said that because, you know, this, this really speaks to the, the, the power that the industry can have when, when journalists like you, um, you know, take their, their wealth of knowledge and experience and expertise and use it in a way that literally benefits everybody's life. I mean, this is, this is journalism at its, you know, I, I, this is not, you know, meant to be a, let's celebrate Brendan Keith uh, show. If you want to turn but it into that, that would we, be fine. We can turn it into that, but, you know, <laughs> let's face it, our industry gets such a bad rap. I mean, you know, people love to, um, you know, it's like, don't kill the messenger. Um, but, um, you know, we have a place in a, in a fully functioning democracy. And, you know, whether we are fully functioning right now is kind of up for debate. But truth journalism plays a very important role, not only to um, bring to light the kinds of stories that you just articulated, where you literally are able to change a 911 system so that, you know, future lives will be saved when somebody calls 911 because it will be routed correctly. But then there are you know, stories like the stories that you've done on on uh, the late great Congressman John Lewis, mm -hmm. um, you know, stories that you've done, um, the, the Forsyth County story, you know, uh, about land of, of black people literally being taken from them. And, and the trajectory of their lives and their families' lives forever changed. So the ability of, of good journalism to uncover truths that otherwise would not see the light of day. Um, there's such an important place for that. And so, you know, we could, we could talk about this for hours, but I, I guess what I want to ask you about this is where you see the industry going, where, where does it need to go to help to re? <laughs> I was going to say, reclaim the public's trust. Some, some people in the public have never trusted reporters. They just won't. But that trust has, has very, you know, it has deteriorated significantly in recent years. What can journalists do now? And then what are you teaching? Because I know you're teaching the next generation of journalists. What are you teaching them about how to move this industry forward in a positive way? I'm glad you used the word industry because there's really two things. There's an industry, Linda, and there's a craft. And the, the craft has never been better, in my opinion. I mean, there is such high quality journalism out there right now in storytelling. Uh, for a while, it was great to, to win a boatload of, of Emmys, regional Emmys. But usually it was, here's the Emmy for the only story that didn't suck. You know, I mean, it felt that way for a while because it was just, we were putting out drivel. It was just sort of like... Um, the same newscast with different actors playing the same characters. Mm. Um, you know, here's today's uh, murder-suicide. Here's today's whatever. Um, and I think now we're starting to see real innovative storytelling. Um, and the problem is, who's watching it? My son, who's almost 15, does not know how to find my show. Uh, our, we have a weekly investigative show called The Reveal. He doesn't know where to find broadcast television. He doesn't understand anything but YouTube. He's very smart, but he doesn't understand content coming from anywhere but a streaming service. Mm -hmm. So what is the future for the industry part of the craft? Now, I would argue good content is platform agnostic. It's going to live wherever we can put it. Right now, we're on YouTube and on a podcast, which is great. Um, but then as, a, as an industry, how do we sustain that? How do we pay the salaries? We are losing reporters to government PIO jobs, which we always have, but we're losing them in incredible numbers from markets like Houston and Atlanta, which these used to be terminal positions. We're now hiring people and they're usually their second job. They're usually 24 or close to that. And by 27 or 28, they're not in the business anymore. So what we've become is a graduate school for public relations. It's we're only no longer we're, three to four years to decide that they don't want to stay in the business. They want to move on into, into a PIO role. Well, imagine the salary, uh, you know, and I'm not picking on my station. I work for Tegna, which is an incredible company. They, they are incredibly supportive. 
They understand these challenges and they're meeting them. They're doing incredible work. Uh, in Houston, they own KHOU. Uh, but look at what's happened with KHOU and the changes it's undergone in the time when you and I were work, working together in Houston to now. Um, they went through this radical sort of uh, loss of some amazing talent over the years. Part of it was they said, oh, you're an anchor? Yeah, now you're a camera person. Um, and then they hand you a camera. And I'm, I'm not talking about KHOU in particular in that regard. I'm talking about the whole industry. Um, now, what if you don't have that skill set, but now you're expected to perform at a broadcast major market level um, and you're learning on the job. So your mistakes are on the air in a major market like Houston or Atlanta. Then throw in, they want you to do four different versions of that story. And oh, by the way, you have a quota. You have to post on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram three times a day. They're counting. And you have to get... Um, you have to get uh, engagement. They measure your engagement. Now, I work for a company uh, that's very responsible in that regard, but there are some other companies out there that measure the engagement. They don't care about the quality of the post. So if let's say you're a reporter who wants to get, you want to get your engagement numbers on social media up. Well, I'm just going to post something that's really politically uh, polarizing. And then I'm going to let the viewers fight it out in the comments section. And every time they hit the anger button and every time they comment, it moves up my engagement. All I do is pull the pin, toss the hand grenade in and walk away. And I look like I've got these great social media numbers. Um, then rinse and repeat. And every day you're barely making deadline. Um, and it doesn't have the reward it once used to. I think another important thing, for better or for worse, Television news doesn't, uh, local television news does not have the cachet it did when you and I were working in the 90s where, you know, you walked into a restaurant and it's Linda Laurel. The whole restaurant stops, you know, that's Linda Laurel. Now the, they're like, who's that? Um, I mean, it's practically the witness protection program to be on local television these days. Uh, and so uh, maybe that's a good thing because I think at some point we had a little too much power. Uh, it's nice to have the check and balance with the internet. It's nice that that the you know you we can be held accountable. I think that's excellent. I think you're getting better journalism because we're not the end all and be all. We're not the last word anymore. So, um, if the younger, if the younger students who are entering the business, I, I I love how you just described you know what it's like to work in a newsroom these days. Okay, and all of the different hats that you must wear in order to keep your job, basically. So if we're losing them at that kind of rate, what does that say for the future of the industry? How, how is it adapting to that? Well, it's going nonprofit, sadly. We're seeing a lot of consolidation uh, so that at the end of the day, I don't think it's going to mirror television or sorry, newspaper, but I think local television is going to mirror radio. Um, you know, there was a time when you had the KTRHs and the other newsrooms, you know, major cities had three, four, and five uh, radio newsrooms. Mm -hmm. uh, now they don't really have any. They don't send reporters out into the field anymore. I think we're heading that way to where we're going to be owned. There's going to be multiple stations once they get past the FCC regulations, which are very likely to fall um, in the next few years, where a single company can own multiple major television stations in a local market. I think then you're going to see the consolidation rapidly um, accelerate. Um, and then that also pushes salaries down even further. The salaries right now are not sustainable where you can work in an Atlanta or a Houston um, or a New York City even and, and raise a family on that salary. Um, and in, in the smaller markets, it's even worse. They're still paying $18,000 a year to start as a reporter uh, in 2021. You qualify for food stamps yeah. as a journalist on television. And then the, the flip side is everybody thinks you're rich because you're on TV. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I had, I had somebody say when I was making 15.5 way back when someone said, hey, you're Brendan Key from Channel 13. I said, yes. They go, what are you doing at a laundromat? I'm like, I'm washing my clothes. <laughs> like, don't you have someone to do that for you? I'm like, I don't even know where my next meal is coming from. Um, so what do we do? I, I would love to know what the answer is. The, um, this owning a broadcast license used to be a license to print money. The, 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 as you know, the profit margins were in the order of 
100%. For every dollar you spent, you brought in $2, one paid off what you spent and the other one went in your pocket as a broadcast ownership company. Uh, stations were owned by families like the Hobbies who treated the station as a um, uh, sort of a, a symbol of their, um, their role in the community. Uh, those days are now are gone now, and there's several TV stations owned by uh, hedge funds. So they're going to extract as much profit as they can out of it. Now I work for Tegna, as I mentioned. Tegna is dedicated to journalism. It's publicly traded, but so long as it stays Tegna, we're in great shape because they believe in the mission of making the world a better place. But they're doing that altruistically because the question is: Is there any money in it? You know. Yeah. Uh, exactly. And at the end of the day, it's a for-profit business. And, you know, I, 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 I want to pick up on the point that you made a moment ago about consolidation and what that really means within the context of where we are as a society right now with so much polarization and so much vitriol and hate and chaos. And, you know, the divide is ever wider every day. Um, to me, when I think about consolidation of media, in particularly broadcast media, that just rings all kinds of alarm bells for me in terms of what that means for the, the public discourse and civil discourse, if you will. Am I wrong in, think, in thinking my gut reaction is that if we have this kind of consolidation, that it, it is not a good thing for um, uh, for civil discourse and the ability for us to try to find some sort of commonality in in our our hum, our human existence on this planet, I mean, is is it a good thing or is it not? Because it's not feeling like it would be a good thing. To well, I, who was it? Uh, was it Descartes? I forget who said, um, you know, democracy is the worst system of government in the world, except for all of the others. Uh, that has been extended to capitalism. Capitalism is the worst form of, of an economic system, except for all of the others. So we'll, the, the bottom line is we live in a capitalist society. And the only other alternative is the government running the media, which obviously is antithetical to the American experiment and to the First Amendment. But you know, the, it's sort of like we've learned lately about all freedoms. Yes, you have the freedom, but it comes at a cost sometimes. And so the First Amendment doesn't include a funding source. It's not like you have the freedom of the press and, oh, by the way, we're going to pay for the press. <laughs> um, they don't. And so you have to come up with a way to fund it. The way we did it, obviously, for years was we said, OK, we're going to give you a 22 minute newscast. And in return, we ask you to watch these eight minutes of soap commercials and, and car ads. Um, nobody's watching that anymore. I don't want to say nobody, but that's still the vast uh uh, majority of our income, but every year it's less. And the, we're doing wonderfully on digital. More people see my work today than ever before. But guess what? Where they see it is not monetized or it's monetized at a level that is not, you, you can't send me to Iraq to cover the war for what we make showing the story covering the war. Mm -hmm. And so are we going to continue to do that? Investigative reporting, as you know, is the first thing that gets cut. Uh, you know, we worked in a newsroom that when we hit a when we hit a um, uh, when we hit a small recession, a couple of people don't get their contract renewed in investigative reporting because it's a luxury. It's it's a, a loss leader. It's like selling milk for less than the grocery store pays for it. It brings you in for the other for the other uh, items. So I'm very bullish on the future. I think it's I think it's great, but I'm also trying to feel my way as a 53 year old. Where do I go? because I'd like to think I have at least 12 years left in me as a journalist, but where do I go now um, if, if, this, if this falls through? And consolidation could lead to that, certainly, unless the company I currently work for is the one doing the gobbling, because right now you're either eating or being eaten as, as a media company. And you've worked for a station that was purchased by another company, and guess what? They bring in their own bosses, and guess what? We're marching the other direction now. So uh, the one thing I will say, though, because uh, I've said more than one thing, but the one thing I think that that is important is I have never felt uh, pressure at the local news level from any manager to espouse a particular political or social viewpoint. I've never had a story killed because it didn't 
fit the narrative. I, I love when people complain about the media. I, I said to this to someone the other day, I'm like, that's, that's like complaining about the restaurants for bad service. Which one? Because you go to one restaurant, you have great service. You go to another restaurant, you have terrible service. But also you're the one picking the restaurant. So if you know people, <laughs> exactly. people say McDonald's should serve broccoli, great. But the people want French fries. You know what? So yeah, I, I love that you brought this up. You're because that leads to my next question. So you're the one picking the restaurant. You're the one picking the channel. You're the one who decides, you know, how, what you're going to consume in your media diet. And right. I, that in, as we're moving forward, there is such an important uh, place in this whole discussion for uh, public education about media consumption. I, I think, you know, I, I had a, um, a really interesting conversation with a young woman who was, who was doing some work for our, uh, for our family. We were, were moving and she was helping us uh, with some things. And, and we had a conversation. This was right before the election, the last election, presidential. And we were talking and I was giving her, I was telling her kind of what my point of view was. And I was, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not going to get into all the details, but basically I was giving her my point of view. And when I, some of the things that I was saying, she'd never heard before. I mean, right. now it's been all over the news. It's, you know, they've been big stories about this, that, or the other. And she'd never heard it. And right. so I said to her, I said, where do you get your news? Mostly from friends and family, social media, and, you know, and, and then a preferred network, whatever, you know, that helps her stay in her lane, that reinforces what she already thinks, right? And so exactly. I tried to, and she said, well, where else would I go? To, to learn more. And I literally gave her, a, a, you know, a list of what I consider to be trusted news sources. And, and see, a lot of people don't understand that you can't, that, that journalists who, who have been trained in the craft and in the industry and best practices do not just go out and get one source and put something on, exactly. on the air or online or on a blog or whatever. It is vetted. You have to have X number of sources to verify whatever the point is that you're trying to make. It is not just let's go talk to somebody and throw it out there and see what sticks on the wall. So I think that we have to find a way to bring the general public into this conversation so that we can have the kind of conversation we're having right now mm -hmm. that helps people understand how the sausage is made how a story gets on the air, you know, how, how all the steps that you had to go through to uh, get the, the 911 calls from this county. And oh, by the way, there are probably 911 calls from another county that nobody else thought to go and get, mm -hmm. but I'm going to go get that. I mean, there are all of these steps and layers and things that happen before a, 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 a journalist will, will put that story out there, but the public doesn't know that. They don't. They don't know that. So how do we get them engaged so that they become an educated part of this conversation that needs to happen? Because if we don't do something, because the, because the, the role that journalism is playing right now is huge in the national divide. It's huge. And, 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 and part of that is because people don't know about how it's made and how to consume their, their, their journalism diet in a responsible manner. So now I'm going to stop and let you. No, you're, I, you're, you and I are seeing completely eye to eye on this. Um, it, it, one, one of the symptoms, I think, because you, there, there are a lot of things that happen. You say, is, is this a cause or is it a symptom? We've all been seeing the videos. Granted, they're rare instances, but because there are so many flights a day, somebody somewhere once a week throws a tantrum on an airplane and has to be restrained with duct tape. And it's usually over something really small. Sometimes alcohol is involved, sure. But we're seeing a different phenomenon now. Why is it people think they can stand up on an airplane where they already knew the rules in advance when they bought the ticket 
And for some reason, at 35,000 feet, this is the this is the hill they choose to die on. Right. Something. This is more than alcohol. It's more than neuroses. Something else is going on here. What I think is going on is we're seeing the comments section on social media come to life in our in our real world. And so the problem is it actually started with us. We're partially responsible. Um, how often did you and I say on television going back 20 plus years, we want to hear from you. We value your opinion. It used to be send us, <laughs> send us a letter. <laughs> then it became, you know, send us an email. Then it became uh, Twitter and whatever. And now we actually show tweets on the air. Well, what, are, what do people think about the vaccines? Do they work? Guess what? Scientists know whether they work or not. There's actually peer-reviewed studies. But let's hear what Hank thinks over in um, you know, Missouri City. Um, and Hank in Missouri City thinks they don't work. What's Hank's educational background? What's Hank's, has Hank done any actual peer-reviewed study? Or is Hank just opining? But we have elevated Hank in Missouri City to be equal with Dr. Whomever, who has spent their whole life dedicated to the study of virology and now, look, there's always room for dissenting opinion. Scientists have been wrong lots of times. But why are we giving Hank the same platform? Now, television started it, I think, um, and, and newspapers. And then social media took off from there. And people think that their opinion is not only valuable, but urgently needed at all times. That, you know what this situation needs? My opinion. There was a video from a few weeks ago where a woman stood up uh, at a comedy show. And she walked up on stage and folded her arms. And the, the comedian was like, what's going on? And she was offended by something the comedian had said and wanted him to apologize for it. And she stood there, I, sort of like, I want to see the manager. And you're like, what? I mean, I would be mortified if I did that. But she thought, because she's constantly told by her friends, her family, and more importantly, her social media network, that she has the best opinions because she surrounded herself with like-minded people. And I'm not picking on her uh, gender. Certain men are in the same boat. Um, and we tend to surround ourselves. It's that dopamine rush from social media. Oh, they liked my comment. Oh, they think I'm great. Um, and then that makes you think that your opinion actually not just matters, but is urgently needed. And so that's the world we live in today. And as you mentioned with the media diet is people are seeking out uh, and it's a market driven thing. People have said, I don't want to sit through a reporter's story. I would rather hear talking heads argue about the issue. Um, you pick the top of any newscast, not opinion show, newscast on any of the 24 hour cable news networks. The A block, which used to be the prime real estate. This is the, the very top of the hour. Oh, it's top of the hour. I got to hear what the news is. It'll usually be a single story. They'll spend 30 seconds telling you the latest information, the facts, and then they'll spend the nine minutes of the A block or 11 minutes of the A block with talking heads opining. Sometimes it's reporters interviewing reporters or alleged reporters. Uh, and, and they'll be saying, well, what do you think about this? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's, and sometimes we're talking about life and death matters like masks and vaccines. And we just want to hear what a reporter thinks about it or what a talking head thinks about it. Um, and but people have chosen this. The market has chosen this uh, over substantive, you know, well thought out journalism. People are always saying to me on Twitter, you know, you guys just make this stuff up. You know how much easier my job would be if I didn't have to go out and get the news? I bust my butt. To, you, I went risked my life in Iraq on three different tours uh, in Kuwait and Iraq during the war to tr come back and tell tell it like it is. If I could just sit here and, and make it up, that would be great. Um, but the problem is that the marketplace has decided that we have an agenda. Um, and we do. Uh, true journalists have an agenda. It's called the truth. Um, and But sometimes the truth, what is the old saying? Um, uh, inconvenient truths will always be beaten out in the marketplace by comforting lies. And so the market is choosing comforting lies over inconvenient truths or uncomfortable truths. That's where we are. Yeah, sadly, that's where we are. So, um, on a, and by the way, my opinion has no value. I'm just saying because <laughs> well, I don't no, want people to think that my opinion is bigger than their opinion. It, it has a lot of value because 
you know, obviously because of your experience and because you're in the trenches every day and because you're out there, you know, trying to uncover truths that that literally, like I said before, have the ability to change our lives for the better. I mean, you know, the whole point is to try to make things better, to make the world a better place. It sounds so contrite and trite, but it is, it's the reason I do this podcast. Um, it's the reason, you know, I, I stay, you know, I, I still consider myself a journalist, although I'm not working for a quote unquote journalist, you know, for a television station or whatever, but, you know, I feel like I have something to offer and that with the skill set and the experience of, um, you know, knowing what it's like to bring stories to light, that now it's about, you know, I'm trying to bring more of the, of the, the humanity to light. And that, that's where, where I want to go next with you as we start to wrap this up. On a human level, as, you know, Brendan, the, the husband and, and loving father and, and, and brother and uncle and, you know, all of the, all of you as a human being, um, where do you, um, where do you, where do you come down on when you, when you talk to your kids about what the future looks like, um, given your background and all that you are doing to make the world a better place, literally every day with the job that you do. What are, what are you saying to them about their future and, and how we can, um, get to the point where we are not othering each other, but we are accepting our, our, our commonalities and our differences and agreeing to disagree whenever we need to do that, but not demonizing each other to the point where we can't even have a civil conversation. So what, what are you saying to your kids today about that and about their future? You know, um, the best thing about my children, 11 and a half and 14 and a half, is that they constantly challenge me all the time. The reason they challenge me all the time, and they, they don't think their dad's all that great, uh, which is, keeps me grounded, which is good, but we've raised them that way to be critical thinkers to not accept what anyone tells you, including your parents. We don't want to indoctrinate them. We don't want to say, this is the way, you've got to think this way. Um, you know, I'm sitting, I'm sitting right now on stolen land. I'm not in Forsyth County, which is the story we talked about. I'm on Cherokee land. This was the Trail of Tears. So the, the land, if you follow my deed back far enough, it, it was Cherokee land. It was a land grant, which is basically the state stealing the land from the Native American uh, Cherokee um, tribe and giving it to, the, to white settlers. Um, I think I try to teach my kids history um, and they're very interested in it, but also I love when they challenge me. I love when they say, well, okay, dad, we're, what are your facts on that? Now, here's the sad thing. One of my children expressed an interest in getting into journalism and I kind of have to talk her out of it. Because um, what I, I mean, at, at the end of the day, yes, I'm a journalist. I'm, I'd be proud if my daughter was one too, but I don't know if it's a field that's going to be able to help her pay the bills. So uh, I want her to be, as a father, I want her to be financially viable and successful. Now, here's the difference though, is that my parents told me the same thing. Um, at least my dad did. My mom wanted me to be a print journalist because she said, why do you want to be one of those hair, hair dryer journalists who has to wear makeup all the time? Um, but, but think about it is the reason I got into it was because it was a passion. And the one thing I try to teach my kids, I picked it up on a story on a, on a real life horse whisperer we did when I was at, um, at KPRC in roughly 1997 or 98 when the movie The Horse Whisperer came out. This guy had a great line. He said, my daddy told me, he said, find something you'd gladly do for free and then get someone to pay you for it. And I love that. But the first part is the most important. Find something you'd gladly do for free, then get someone to pay you for it. If it's a passion, the, the money will come. There's an old joke in academia, find something that you love and you'll never work a day in your life because that field probably isn't hiring. <laughs> I mean, there's another saying in journalism, which is, um, sure, the hours are long and the pay sucks. But on the other hand, everybody hates you. <laughs> um, and but, you know, I, I try to be like the weather. Um, 
And I don't mean the meteorologist because we all know Frank Billingsley gets gets an earful when he calls the forecast wrong, uh, which is rare, very rare. Um, our buddy Frank, who's uh, retiring, I understand soon. Um, but uh, but I try to be like the weather itself. The weather uh, is the weather ignores criticism and just keeps on doing what it does. The weather doesn't care what you think about it. And I I it's important we listen. Journalists have to be listeners. But at the same time, we also have to keep doing what we're doing, regardless of whether, um, I mean, I don't know, it's one of those tree falls in the woods kind of things and no one's around to hear it. There are people out there who are listening. There are people out there. It is still making a difference. So long as that's the case, I'll keep doing this. I want my children to be critical thinkers. um, And I want them also to look past labels uh, and look past sort of identity politics and all of that to try to see the, the, human, the human behind the face. Um, and that, that's all I can do. I can only teach them and hopefully they pass it on because all of this is learned. Racism is learned and um, it's all handed down. And sadly, where we were at this moment where it looked like we were finally healing, we're still being brought down by this original sin uh, in our country, which is really sad because it's an extraordinary country that has a complicated background. And the idea that we would not even allow people to learn that history is shocking um, because information is agnostic. It's also vital, um, but it can be weaponized and it can also be weaponized by the way you conceal it. If only we could get that message out there to a, a broader audience about the need to not whitewash what this country, how this country started, um, but to really face it head on and help our children to understand, you know, what, what the history is. And then, as you say, to be critical thinkers and to be able to help move us forward. Um, gosh, Brendan, this is, this has been such an, a, an amazing conversation. I'm so glad that we really had a chance to, um, to sit here and talk about all of this. Uh, I guess my, my last question for you, and I don't usually ask this question on the podcast, but I've got my journalist hat on today. All right. And so my last question is, is there anything that you'd like to add to this conversation that I haven't given you a chance to say? Something that you think is important for our audience to hear um, as it pertains to the mission of this podcast. Yeah, I, I, and it's interesting. That's always my last question as a journalist, too. Is there anything you want to add? Is there anything we've missed? I ask it at every interview, and I thank you for asking it. You know, I think we often talk about the, um, the things we are or represent that affect us in terms of discrimination against whoever we are, uh, that the things that minimize our voice uh, or, or at least attempt to minimize our voice. But we have to talk about the other side, too, is each of us also has some level of privilege. Sometimes that privilege is the color of your skin, uh, for better or for worse. The, sometimes that privilege is granted by your socioeconomic status. Sometimes that privilege is because you have a microphone in front of you and an audience. Um, we need to use that privilege to speak up for those who don't have that same privilege. That the people who, and I'm not talking about less than those that that group of people, whoever they are, may have a privilege I don't have, and they should be speaking up for the privilege I don't have. But I should also be speaking up for that privilege. And so, one of the things I do routinely on social media is I tell things like it is, but I but I'm telling it from the middle-aged white male, which is almost, you know, stereotype unto itself in this country right now to say, wait, you know, I'm, I'm going to speak to other middle-aged, uh, balding, overweight white males <laughs> and say, hey, listen up. And they might listen to me or they might not listen to one of my friends who is not any or maybe not one of those things. And I constantly get private messages from some of my friends will say, thank you for saying what I wasn't allowed to say. And I, I'll, I'll challenge him and say, why aren't you allowed to say it? Oh, because they'll say I'm playing the race card or I'm playing the gender card or I'm playing the socioeconomic card or whatever. But 
it costs us nothing to speak up for the, to elevate uh, voices, to speak up for those who either don't have a voice or to elevate, elevate smaller voices. And it's not advocacy if City Hall has the voice and this person had, doesn't have the voice. To elevate their voice isn't taking their side. It's leveling the playing ground, uh, playing field. And, and that's the difference between equity and equality. And we have to start trying to achieve equity um, instead of the sort of mythical equality because we're, we're not all equal, but we need to have equity. That is the perfect way for us to end this conversation. And I'm so glad that you brought that up because so many people struggle with that, with the concept of equality versus equity and the need for people who have the privilege, whatever it, it is, whether it's, it's racial or hierarchical class, whatever it might be, to speak up for those whose voice is not equal to theirs. Mm -hmm. And so, um, wow, Brendan, thank you so much. I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you making the time to, uh, to share your, your thoughts and um, just all of who you are and just keep fighting the good fight, my friend. Keep doing what you're doing because you are making such a huge impact on our world. I mean, and, I, and it's not a, you know, it sounds like a big thing to say, but it's, it's really true. It's really true. And I'm, I'm honored to know you and to call you a friend. And, and you as well, Linda. And, and when I look at people like Bill Baeza and myself, who've gotten gray and old and you've stayed youthful, uh, I don't know how you've done it. I'd like you to share the secret because you don't look any different than when you tossed to me for a live shot in 1997. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. I will take that compliment. Thank you so much. Thanks for what you do. This is a brilliant podcast and it is making a difference. I know it is. Thank you, Brendan. I appreciate that. I feel like Brendan and I just barely scratched the surface of what we could talk about. So I'm definitely going to have to have him back. In the meantime, do yourself a favor and go to his website, brendankeefe.com and find out everything that he's been working on. See all of the stories that we talked about and so many more. Again, brendankeefe.com and we will of course link to that in the show notes. Thank you again to Brendan for sharing his thoughts, perspective on this industry that we both love so much. It's important, folks. I know a lot of people out there uh, like to give reporters a bad rap, but I got to tell you, Brendan is one of the good guys and he is working on behalf of all of us. And there are many out there just like him. So thanks again for giving him permission to speak and for having the courage to listen with an open mind. We'll see you next time. Thanks again to our sponsor, BMW of West Houston. There's a special offer for members of the Our Voices Matter podcast community. Just click the link in the show notes, bmwwest.com.